Just a little bugle boy there, huh, Wyatt? Little bugle boy. LBB. That's what we always call you. All of us in the world. So, should we just launch right in? I think we should. Uh, welcome to Super You're Duper so Stitches. Now. Oh, really? <laughs> so I can really just talk really sound. All right, let's go right into super, it. Now we're an NPR show. Oh, I'm just going to go to bed. Uh, the paranormal podcast that uses science to kind of break apart the spooky. Bingo, I'm Wyatt. I'm Jake. And, uh, yeah. yeah. it's one of, like, I guess 67 different intros you can choose from now, all yeah, of which exactly. have varying degrees of effectiveness. <laughs> Welcome to return listeners and welcome to new listeners. Yeah, if you're just joining us, specifically if you're joining us from uh, the the very nice promo from Emma and Dan at Real Life Ghost Stories, thanks so much for checking Thank us out. Thank you so much. Thank you, Emma and Dan. That was really sweet. Um, yeah, it's part of a promo exchange from them and uh, we'll, we'll be playing theirs on here. For those of you who aren't familiar with their show, once they uh, send it to us, so that'll be cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. They have a very, very fun, sweet show. Uh, highly recommend any of our listeners go check them out as well. Real life ghost stories. If you like the spookier side of things we do, since we do get into a lot of science stuff and not always things that are necessarily actually creepy, uh, they really just do the good spook stuff. They do indeed. Tell t- tell tales and uh, react and riff on them in a very entertaining fashion. And open with a review of a horror movie each week as well. Which so. is extremely entertaining. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's very fun. <laughs> so yeah, do check them out. Also, if you are here uh, just randomly, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> We're inviting only two <laughs> specific groups of people right now. If you've just shown up randomly, just sort of surfing the web... And you just happen to click on this out of pure interest, uh, go away. Yeah. Turn off the podcast Come back right when now. When we ask for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's only so many seats at the table, all right, buddy? <laughs> anyway, all right. We're with, that, uh, with that said, with that said, everyone who's still here, uh, let's. Uh, yeah, let's now talk they're about out of some, the room. <sighs> yeah. Um, so the theme this week, we, we kind of teased it up last week, is going to be um, experiments and or expeditions gone wrong. Indeed. And uh, as it turns out, most experiments that have failed that are associated with some kind of story turn out to be pretty darn depressing. Absolutely <laughs> horrifying. Like just the so, worst possible thing. We uh, both bailed on that aspect, so I think we're going to be doing sort of failed endeavors expeditions. Well, well you, got, is, you got yeah, something. No, yeah, no, yours I, is. I did manage mm-hmm, to get an mm-hmm. experiment uh, at the very at the 11th good. hour. I managed to say, wait a minute, this is actually an experiment, and it's fun. No one died. You did good. Uh, so I lucked out. So we do have one of each as a result. I'm familiar broadly with that story, but I uh, I uh, don't know the nitty gritty, so I'm looking forward to that one. Cool. But before we get into that, I understand you have an update. I do indeed. We haven't done this one before, so I think it needs its own theme. Do you want to just use the sound of the friggin' bugs or whatever? <laughs> And that is the theme. That sound can mean only one thing, <laughs> that we have a semi-update on the Cuban Sonic Attacks saga. Mm-hmm. Brought to my attention by a friend and art designer of the show, Lauren. This is a recent article in the New York Times Magazine by Dan Hurley, which gives a pretty excellent recap and digest of both the strange events as they occurred and the ongoing debate as to whether the events should be considered a physical phenomenon, psychological, or somewhere in between. 
I'll draw on just a few excerpts from the article, which I've edited and condensed for today's update. Which um, episodes did we talk about this in before? Uh, I don't remember. Okay, I think it was... Uh, Hooked way, on Sonics. Hooked on Sonics, episode five, I think that was, way, way back. Yep. They came up again in... Um, mm. It was called Bah Humbuzz. Yes, yes. I don't remember which episode that was. I actually have an, uh, an audio update of my own, but I'll save it for next time. Oh, goody. Okay, mm. cool. Yeah, my update's a little long-ish today, so sorry. Should I keep the theme playing for the entire length of the second? Yeah. <laughs> so, if you've not heard about the Cuban sonic attacks or need a refresher, back in late 2016, high, uh, piercing high-pitched noises were heard by a couple of recently arrived United States Embassy officials in Havana. They would hear the noises in their homes, but if they moved to a different room or walked outside, the noises stopped. Two officials said they believed that the sound was man-made, perhaps a form of harassment. Soon thereafter, folks who'd heard the sound began to develop a variety of symptoms, headaches, fatigue, dizziness, mental fog, hearing loss, and nausea. It paralyzed me, said one victim. When the sound occurred, I could not move. I couldn't get up until it stopped, unquote. So basically imagine if nails on a chalkboard had sex with mosquitoes in your ear and their kids stared <laughs> into your bedroom window until you had to go to the hospital. <laughs> All right, I'm imagining it. Naturally, in relatively little time, many folks at the embassy were freaking out. Amazingly, of roughly 80 people subjected to medical testing following the sound attacks, 12 were found by the otolaryngologist, which is an ear, nose, and throat doctor, which mm. is why they go by ENTs instead of otolaryngologist. Yeah, that's a little, a little bit of a mouthful. 12 were found by that person to have inner ear damages of some kind, so mm. better than one in eight. A few others did not hear noises, and some who did described other more subtle sounds, including one that called to mind the experience of vibrating air pressure in a car when there's a single open window. So that awful buffeting feeling. I hate that feeling. It makes yeah. me feel like my head's going to explode when <laughs> <laughs> I have that experience. So I can imagine people really disliking this. American officials reach out to ambassador heads of other countries, and similar symptoms are reported there. For instance, after the Canadian ambassador notified his staff... 27 officials and family members there asked to be tested because they suspected they were also subjected to these sounds. Well, 12 were found to be suffering from a variety of symptoms similar to those experienced by Americans. Hmm. So, by August of 2017, the story finally went public. News reports citing an official theory that attributed the symptoms to a sonic attack using some sort of invisible energy force. We initially wrote this all off as possibly a freakout over intense insect noises such as crickets or cicadas. Yeah. But the claim of a sonic weapon gained some scientific credibility when, in February of last year, 2018, the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, <laughs> published a study on the subjects of the attacks. Quote, these individuals appear to have sustained injury to widespread brain networks, the paper stated. Hmm. So that ain't just messing around. Finding no obvious signs of a viral or chemical cause, the paper left unanswered how the injuries might have occurred and instead simply assumed that the symptoms were due to an, quote, unknown energy source associated with auditory and sensory phenomena. It stays weird. So... <laughs> Two and a half years after the first diplomats in Havana said they heard strange sounds and fell ill, the claims of an attack by an invisible weapon remain not only unproven, but also highly contested by prominent physicists and engineers in the United States and abroad. Dozens of leading neurologists, psychiatrists, and psychologists, meanwhile, have offered an alternative narrative, that the diplomat's symptoms are primarily psychogenic or functional in nature. Hmm. If true, it would mean that the symptoms were caused not by a secret high-tech weapon, but by the same confluence of psychological and neurological processes, entirely subconscious yet remarkably powerful, 
which underlie hypnosis and the placebo effect. Huh, that's interesting. Dan Hurley seems to buy this and makes a strong case for what Jake and I have brought up numerous times on the show. Essentially, hysteria-type responses to events or traumas do happen and can persist in all manner of people. Hurley details this at length using examples from the 1800s through recent history to explain how this isn't some parapsychological fad, but a case of powerful, funny functioning of our brain's software. Even if all the diplomats experienced an actual physical attack, like a blow to the head, shortly before their symptoms appeared, which none of them did, most should have fully recovered in a matter of days, weeks, or months, Hmm. as is standard following a minor head injury. Instead, many of them experienced symptoms that remained steady or worsened over a period of months, and some continued to suffer chronic, perhaps lifelong symptoms following these sonic attacks. Wow. So while usually... Inconsistent with a concussion, such long-term effects are routinely seen in cases of a psychogenic disorder. This all leads towards what could be called the functional disorder hypothesis. The biological underpinning of how such disorders are kicked into gear remains, as with many other neurological disabilities, only faintly understood at this point. The experience is thought to be brought on in part by undue attention, fear, and expectation. But these conscious processes are only part of the story. Much more happens at the deep neurological level where all our perceptions, feelings, movements, and memories are encoded. Hmm. Essentially, functional disorders appear to hijack the normal neurological mechanisms by which we experience our body. So Hurley details the case of Jason Lindsley, who in 2016, as an otherwise healthy 21-year-old college student living in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, gets sick with flu-like symptoms and starts to feel uncomfortably numb from head to toe. (laughs) (laughs) To make a long story short, his condition deteriorates to difficulty in walking, terrible pain in his back, and weakness in his limbs. After a year of various treatments for all forms of malady, and despite months of physical therapy aimed at strengthening his leg muscles, he remained unable to stand without assistance. Wow. Then, Lindsley's mother found a video online of John Stone, a neurologist at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland who Hurley interviews extensively for the article, talking about functional disorders. Lindsley recalled, quote, The doctors were labeling me with a mental problem, like I was doing this to myself, and it was my fault. Dr. Stone said this is absolutely not the case. I thought maybe this guy is right, that your brain is so powerful, it can trick itself into doing whatever it wants. Lindsley emailed Stone, who put him in touch with Catherine LeFavre, a neurologist who runs a clinic for functional movement disorders, one of the few in the United States, at the University of Louisville. In March 2017, almost exactly a year after his symptoms began, he entered in a wheelchair. A week later, he walked out on his own power as if nothing had ever been wrong. Wow. Treatment consisted of what Lefevre calls motor retraining. Physical therapists began by asking Lindsley to make minuscule uh, movements of his feet, assuring him over and over that he could do what his brain was telling him he couldn't. He also spent part of each day undergoing cognitive behavioral therapy aimed at learning relaxation strategies and focusing on his own well-being. And yet, the idea that the diplomats are suffering from a functional disorder is firmly rejected not only by the State Department officials, but also by the diplomats Hurley spoke with and doctors who have treated them uh, who are convinced that the symptoms were caused by something external, physical, or quote-unquote real. Hmm. But they might be wrong. Quote, If people have a functional disorder, it's obviously very damaging to tell them they have a brain injury, Stone said. Telling someone they have a traumatic brain injury is not going to help them if they actually have a functional disorder. Hmm. And it can stop them from getting therapy that might help them. Well, damn. That is my update for today. Very interesting. The plot keeps getting thicker. I tell you what. So, I like that angle, though, very much. Small, weird environmental cue could lead to 
basically psyching yourself out to the point of medical concern. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for uh, updating us, Lauren, the constant watchdog on all things Cuban sonic attack. <laughs> exactly. Very good hearing. <laughs> I think you go first today. Uh, yes, I do. So, like I said, I wanted to try and get an experiment kind of story in here so we could have one experiment and one expedition and eventually I managed to find one in the form of a kind of fun little thing called uh, Biosphere Bio- 2. <laughs> That's right, Wyatt. Um, so it's a product originally intended to study the viability of creating fully sustainable self-contained living stations on other planets or just also just a general study on sustainability in a broader sense. Mm-hmm. Um, this was before sustainability was even really in use like it is today, like the, the buzzword that is sustainability. But that was at the core of their work. Mm-hmm. Biosphere 2 was built between 1897, <laughs> between 1987 <laughs> and 1991 by Space Biosphere Ventures, which is more or less as kind of an eccentric millionaire brainchild style project. <laughs> uh, and it was talked up a bunch, like so much news media coverage mm-hmm. about this big experiment that was going to happen. And like, oh, you know, this whole futuristic idea of what can you do and work with right. like, all that stuff. Um, located in Oracle, Arizona, which is about 50 miles north of Tucson. And, uh, yeah, yeah, the portion of the earth that contains all living things as opposed to, you know, the mantle or the core or the distant outer atmosphere is known as the biosphere. Mm-hmm. And it's the original making it biosphere one. Hence the experimental station was number two. <laughs> so it's two after all of the entire earth. Yes. <laughs> like, well, that's the original biosphere. We're making our own biosphere now. Separate from all that. Yes. I mean, the idea being that, that the exact same setup could be put on Mars, for example. Good luck establishing a pelagic zone, bitches. have <laughs> <laughs> so much water. <laughs> um, anyway, that's a, that's an ocean joke. <laughs> Um, so here's some background info on Biosphere 2 from Environment and Ecology. Mm. Quote, at a size comparable to two and a half football fields, Biosphere 2 remains the largest closed system ever created. The sealed nature of the structure allowed scientists to monitor the continually changing chemistry of the air, water, and soil contained within. Health of the human crew was monitored by a medical doctor inside and an outside medical team. Biosphere 2 contained representative biomes, a 1,900 square meter rainforest, an 850 square meter ocean with a coral reef, hmm. a 450 square meter mangrove wetlands, um, and uh, see, a, th- a 1,300 square meter savanna grassland, a 1,400 square meter fog desert, a 2,500 square meter agricultural system, human habitat, and a below ground level technical infrastructure. Wow. So pretty intense. That's cool. I will, we'll post pictures to it. It's pretty neat looking as far as all the glass and stuff. Just like it's, it's a pretty impressive. Yeah. yeah, heating and cooling water circulated through independent piping systems and passive solar input through the glass space frame panels covering most of the facility, and electrical power was supplied into Biosphere Two from an on-site natural gas energy center through airtight penetrations. So. I mean, if you said it's it's natural gas power, so it's not really that uh, <laughs> self-contained and sustainable. It's like, oh, we have to use Biosphere Two. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, the goal was to lock some folks inside, completely sealed off from the outside world in terms of air and supplies, 
and see if they could maintain the environments inside and survive. This is all pre-Netflix as well. <laughs> yes. Uh, this would happen in two missions. I'll be focusing on the first. Okay. Uh, this next portion comes from Discover Magazine. So, quote from that. In September 1991, four women and four men in NASA-style jumpsuits entered the airlock of Biosphere 2. It's a pretty good start. They went in. Uh, <laughs> Twelve days into the mission, Jane Pointer, a young English woman in charge of the farm, put her hand in a threshing machine while winnowing rice. This may be a bad call. I don't know. She just had to live up to that namesake. Yep. Uh, the group's doctor sewed the tip of her foot. The dangerous part of the machine is there. Oh, God. <laughs> The group's doctor sewed the tip of her middle finger back on, but the graft didn't take and she was evacuated for surgery. Uh, she returned in only a few hours to serve out the two-year mission. When she re-entered the airlock, a duffel bag was placed inside with her. Ooh. So uh, she was gone for less than seven hours. Illicit. Yeah. Um, but the duffel bag became a huge fucking deal with the news media. Quote, it contained nothing of substance, Pointer said, some circuit boards and a planting plan for the rainforest. But the media had a field day with it, along with the fact that someone had left and then re-entered, which couldn't have been done on Mars, unquote. Which, sure, but it wasn't even two weeks in. So, I mean, big fucking deal. Yeah. And did they want her to lose her finger? I don't really understand that part. All in the yeah. name of authenticity or something? <laughs> like, yes, if that were to happen off-planet, you would just have the deal, and that would be that. But in this case, like, okay, they're not trying to test... How well you can survive having yeah. your finger maimed. It's just to say, okay, what this happens is a proof if you... Of, massive proof of concept, Exactly. Guys. And yeah, again, 12 days in, and she only left for less than seven hours to have the surgery, went right back in again. Right. It's also never clear what, was exactly, uh, what exactly was in the bag for sure, but any new supplies did kind of breach the experimental design. Like if they were bringing stuff in that they didn't already have... Yeah, you'd want to get that clean yeah, so, from the jump. So her leaving, coming back, not a big deal. But bringing anything else in, a little screwy. Mm-hmm. But whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, more ominous than even partial finger severings, signs of trouble <laughs> with the internal atmosphere began within 24 hours. Oh my god. Each morning the crew had a breakfast meeting over bowls of homegrown porridge and Star Trek style chairs around a polished black granite table. Uh, the morning after they were all sealed in, the crew captain announced that carbon dioxide in Biosphere 2's atmosphere had risen to 521 parts per million, a 45% increase above levels outside at the time. Lovely. By the following day, the lowest it went was 826. Oh my god. Over the months that followed, the news at the, mor- um, the, news at the morning meetings got worse. Crew members were feeling tired and began to pant when they climbed stairs. Mm-hmm. So the CO2 was building up like crazy. They were losing oxygen having a bad time (laughs) they continued their normal daily routines maintaining their agricultural plot tending to the various animals making food but yeah shit was not looking good breathing wise for them (laughs) much attention had been focused on charismatic species when biosphere 2 was put together Hmm. a biologist surveyed the world's hummingbirds to find one with a bill the right shape to pollinate a variety of plants inside the structure oh my goodness and without a mating display predisposing it to fatal collisions with the glass so like they were really thinking about Really thinking about all of the cool species they could put in there and making sure they'd be I was going to say, a hummingbird seems like a pretty, it's like the Fabergé egg of the birds. <laughs> exactly, yeah. They also had bush babies in there for some <sighs> reason in the rainforest section, just because. Just because, because yeah. they're cute. I think that's exactly why. Man. And um, so they, they really thought about all of like the cool stuff they could put in there, but they hadn't thought about other stuff. The main thing they didn't consider was soil bacteria. I was just going to say, I'd want worms and bacteria. <laughs> well, they had bacteria. Oh, they had plenty of bacteria oh, no. the general plan was to have a fuckload of plants inside that would take in carbon dioxide during photosynthesis right release oxygen 
um, and that would just kind of sustain keep them alive. Yeah, they have enough plants that it would just keep making that work. But no one in the planning process accounted for soil microbial respiration. Oh, and in fact, shit. the majority of respiratory processes in terrestrial ecosystems happen in the dirt. Mm. So Biosphere 2 was meant to be used by rotating crews for 100 years. <laughs> they were bringing that. Like, oh, we're just going to keep Damn. having new crews every every time. Bring and in the going, babies. We need a new crew. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, this is from the article, feeling that they had one shot to invest their little world with life-giving nutrients because they didn't want to bring anything new and they wanted to be completely self-sustaining all that time, just having new people each time. They had loaded their soils with a compost and rich muck from the bottom of a cattle pond. Uh-oh. Uh, so when the airlocks closed, soil bacteria had a massive party, exhaling carbon dioxide and tipping the balance the wrong way. Oh, boy. By January 1993, so they started in September, this is in Jan- uh, January, Biosphere 2's carbon dioxide levels were 12 times that of the outside, and oxygen levels were what mountaineers get at 17,000 feet. <sighs> the cruise doctor was having trouble adding up simple figures and disqualified himself from duty. So a year and four months into the mission, sorry, this was the following January, not the same, not, not a few months after So the they started. at least made it a year in. They did make it a year in, yes. Tank trucks containing 31,000 pounds of liquid oxygen started driving up to the access road to the site. Oh my um, god. So the crew said that having all the oxygen pumped inside made them instantly feel better, like they hadn't truly been alive till that point. Well, they're no like, kidding. Oh, yeah, they're like, oh my god, I'm breathing, running around, like this is the best. I wonder if they like suffered serious brain damage from that. There, uh, there have been different studies on carbon dioxide effects. On like usually it's acute exposure over short periods of time, and it's, I think it's even higher levels than they experienced. This is probably the closest to like long term exposure they've really encountered. Mm-hmm. It isn't great but i don't know that the um, effects are permanent once you're removed from the I actual see. conditions of it I mean, right, it's, it's, right yeah there's not enough for long term like, really no other experiments on long-term exposure what that can do still how intense to imagine living in that for i mean with conditions as bad as they were for probably what four or six months or something like this yeah oh yeah easily a long time yeah so they were they bounced right back but i mean that was a pretty huge problem for just the overall situation there yikes yeah um they ended up completing the two-year run and all eight of the crew members exited still alive and not even having killed one another which is great that's pretty good yeah Um, on another note the crew divided into two factions of four who fucking hated each other by the end of the whole thing (laughs) just from having been in there so long I think uh, there's a name for it in psychology. It's, I think... Um, Dickhole click syndrome? Yeah. Um, Let me see here. Psychology. Like irrational antagonism or something like that. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I think you're right. Irrational antagonism? Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Use the term irrational antagonism to describe what happens between people isolated for more than about six weeks. Yeah. Okay, cool. So that is what it was. Being isolated like that for so long, they started to just go nuts. Um, but they, I guess, have since uh, buried those hatchets... Some other problems, and these are listed from a Mental Floss article about it. Quote, the coral reef became overgrown with algae. Most of the pollinating insects died. A bush baby in the rainforest biome got into the wiring and was electrocuted. Oh, no. It was not totally seamless is what I'm getting at here. There, there was some problems with... Barbecue, if you will. <laughs> I'll end the little story of just their particular first run at this with a portion of an article from September 25th, 1993, mm. the day before the first mission ended. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is by Scott Vegaberg from New Scientist. Listen, I had to pay a subscription fee to access the article I used for last week. Um, it's like it's built quarterly, so if I'm paying for three months of access to that site, I'm going to use all three oh months God. of access to that yeah. site. So yes, I did use this particular article to justify <laughs> purchasing that last week. Um, well done, well done. Anyway, quote: Biosphere Two provides a marvelous opportunity for doing Earth science research. 
Trouble is, very little science seems to be underway, and many researchers say the situation will not change at the present management's day in charge. Scientists say that the directors of Space Biosphere Ventures, the private company behind the experiment, along with the Texas billionaire who financed the project, are far too steeped in New Age philosophies, theater and art, cooperative living, organic farming, and living an idyllic existence in space or on Mars. According to Gerald, um, Gerald Soffin, a biologist with NASA and an observer of and advisor to Biosphere 2, the Biosphere project could be used as a research tool to delve into questions such as the effects of global warming, but, quote, that's never happened. But it's cool that they're even thinking about the idea of testing effects of global warming back in 93. True. I was going to say everything you were describing make, makes me think of just what we're going through right now. Yeah, totally. Soffin, who was the project director of the Mars Viking missions between 1975 and 1982, adds that it hasn't been an experiment as claimed, but that it's more like a demonstration project and there are no controls. Quote, all they've done is close the door and see if they can keep conditions the same, he says, adding that they have only been partially successful because of food shortages and a puzzling decline in oxygen that needed outside help earlier in the year. Other NASA scientists agree that without controls and with no ability to separate sections of the project and manipulate variables, little can be learned. Mm. Also, on the note of that weird oxygen decline, it wasn't just the soil microbes that they totally failed to plan for. Here's from the article. For many scientists, the only real science to have emerged from the past two years of Biosphere 2 was solving the problem of the missing oxygen and carbon dioxide. And that was the result of research by Jeff Severinghouse, an outsider drafted in for this task, by collecting samples passed to him through the airlock. So he was the one who figured out the soil microbe problem. Some mm. outside scientists came in to see what was going on for mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this extra carbon dioxide in the air was still not enough to account for all the missing oxygen. Hmm. The missing gas turned up in the concrete. Oh, damn. Yeah. So carbon dioxide reacts with a minor component of concrete, calcium hydroxide, to form calcium carbonate. Uh, and in this way, it was being removed from circulation entirely. Wow. It's a fairly well-known phenomenon known to engineers as carbonation of concrete. Huh. Severinghouse feels this problem and the overzealous microbes could have been predicted had biosphere managers consulted and listened to experts in soil microbiology. Mm-hmm. He says his work with the project highlighted the biospherians' hostility to the way traditional science is conducted. He adds, There's a certain arrogance, like they think they're too good for the mainstream. But now that they have seen the value of the mainstream deductive scientific method, project participants seem to be, quote, coming around. <laughs> So they really didn't like they it was a very ambitious project, a very cool idea with a lot of stuff about it that was actually pretty well realized. Like they did manage to survive the whole, they, as far as food and waste like that all worked. They stayed in there and survived for a year without anything coming in from outside uh, and not just by stockpiling shit. They like grew they were the, growing and yeah, they're growing yeah. their own food. They had livestock animals and stuff like they really did make it work, but they really didn't plan for everything if they were to actually try and do this on another planet they would have all died within probably days it it is incredible to me just the scope and scale of the project and the fact that at least from where we're sitting now i feel like something like this would never happen like that project could not be launched today without a much clearer game plan as far as how they would account for all these things oh yeah but maybe it's because of stuff like this that we actually have such a stricture on like sure and uh, i think it also depends too based on the kinds of people who like this was a private company that was like hey this would be a cool thing oh true 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 and they just did it as opposed to sort of the spacex if this were grant funded it'd be oh there'd be so many things accounted for like (laughs) it was so different yeah that's a good point i was thinking about it from a 
an NSF NIH kind of angle. Yeah, which if that were the case, this yeah wouldn't happen. Like <laughs> it would absolutely have worked right. Uh, They're like, we'll give you a bio room. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it will be twelve by twelve. Uh, <laughs> um, it wasn't all failure though. Like I said, there were aspects of it that were fine, in spite of the lack of thorough planning and indeed actual scientific know-how. Uh, there were still some positives. Crew member Mark Nelson actually wrote. He I think went to Dartmouth and. He wrote in their alumni newsletter or something uh, last year. He said, quote, sadly, much of what we learned went unappreciated. Overwrought media coverage led people to think the experiment failed. But a million visitors came to peer into Biosphere 2, and millions more followed us in news accounts. We were happy to be stars of our new age zoo, a living exhibit that increased human understanding of our relationship with our global biosphere. Hmm. So it's hard to argue with the idea that the stunt raised awareness. That, that for sure happened. Quote, we proved that a sealed ecosystem can work for years. A lesson Mars colony planners can build on. We learned lessons to help keep stressed reefs alive and how to protect rainforests. We worked with our green allies to keep CO2 from getting too high. Our farm showed that plants. High, yeah, our <laughs> farm showed that high productivity and full nutrient recycling can be done without toxic chemicals. So I was going to say as a point, or green allies is quite the euphemism for trucks full of oxygen and scientists telling <laughs> yeah. us how we fucked up. Yeah. I think uh, by that point, he probably saw them as little green men <laughs> showing yeah, up in a spaceship. Uh, but they did at least demonstrate plausibility for what they were trying to do. Right, right. It wasn't a total fucking burnout. Yeah, exactly. They made it the full two years, and yeah, as a proof of concept, it's like, well, okay, it might work. Right. The second mission got all kinds of fucked up, and then the company dissolved halfway through, and they just had to abandon So, Oh, jeez. And like, I think, I don't know if there was an actual like fisticuffs happening inside, but like, things just got bad. Oh, boy. It didn't work out. Um, the structure is now owned by the University of Arizona, and it actually hmm. may soon be used for some climate change research. It's been used for different stuff. I think you can actually go there on tours. It looks like it'd be a really cool place to go. I'd love to check it out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they hopefully will be doing some more real science in it in the near future. Cool. Nelson ends his little thingy with, Today I remain optimistic that humans can solve the problems they cause. Mm. So just based on the kind of self-sustaining thing that he learned to do in those two years inside of there, he thinks it is possible for us to not fuck up as much as we constantly do mm -hmm. in the world and mm -hmm. maybe clean things up as we make messes and stuff like mm -hmm. that which would be pretty cool if it were something anyone had any interest in actually trying oh my god i know uh sadly the experiment led to the production of biodome with poly shore and that alone is unforgivable at the end i've never seen that one actually i haven't either and i never intend to poly shore though god. my goodness so yeah that is an experiment gone wrong very good i uh had not recalled that until you brought it up in an earlier conversation and i was like oh yes very good choice yeah it's seen little like just passing things about it and then i the way i found this was after searching through so many different like listicles about like oh experiments gone wrong and so many of them as we said were truly horrifying terrible things right and then this is one that's like oh here's a goof up thing i was like oh thank god yeah i forgot about biodome and it has legitimate biosphere, biosphere yeah and it has legitimate like insights and narrative versus just like everyone died everyone's dead now because or it's poison pe some people are evil or it's like whatever yeah. the take home was like oh here's just like shit went wrong that didn't have to it worked out okay and isn't it interesting to look at now exactly very very cool groovy okay so for us today i have an expedition gone mysterious let's, put it, th let's put it that way <laughs> Um, which I'm titling Faucets in the Jungle. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
So Percy Fawcett was born just 97 years before Neo from the Matrix on the 18th of August, 1867 in Torquay, Devon, England to Edward, here come that Boyd Fawcett <laughs> and Myra Elizabeth. He would later attend the Royal Military Academy Woolrich as a cadet and be commissioned as a lieutenant of the Royal Artillery in 1886. He enjoyed subsequent promotions and during his free time would travel to Hong Kong, Malta, and Trincomalee, Ceylon, where he met his future wife, Nina Agnes Patterson. They had two sons, Jack and Brian, and one daughter, Joan. Fawcett joined the Royal Geographical Survey in 1901 in order to study surveying and map making, go figure. Later, he worked for the British Secret, Secret Service in North Africa while continuing to work on his craft as a surveyor. Fawcett's first expedition to South America was in 1906 when, at the age of 39, he traveled to Brazil to map a jungle area at the border of Brazil and Bolivia at the behest of the Royal Geographical Society. While on the expedition in 1907, Fawcett claimed to have seen and shot a 62-foot-long giant anaconda, Jesus. a claim for which he was, even then, ridiculed by scientists. <laughs> 62 feet. <laughs> I don't remember if I brought him up specifically Titanoboa. back in the <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I don't know if, I, if his name came up in my thing about anacondas back back along. Mm-hmm. Overexcited Europeans, whatever episode that was. Oh, yeah. I don't remember either. He reported other mysterious animals unknown to, the, to zoology, such as a small cat-like dog about the size of a foxhound, which he claimed to have seen twice, and the giant Epizauca spider, which was said to have poisoned a number of locals, potentially a Brazilian wandering spider, which is legitimately aggressive and highly venomous, and hmm. is pretty big. You say it poisoned them. I like to imagine that it like slipped something into their Put drink. Put something in the drink, yeah, yeah as opposed to uh, envenomated or whatever. Yes. <laughs> yes. In general, in nature, things are poisonous if they make you sick when you eat them, and venomous if you are hurt by their biting you <laughs> can i put that in a clearer way is that true am i fucking wrong I, well i think i mean poison versus venom like yeah poison tends to be toxins i think found in a thing whereas venom is usually actually injected from their mouth yeah right you are poisoned by but you can envenomate yeah the more we talk about it, the more i'm second guessing it because <laughs> i think poisoning is passive relatively speaking and envenomation is active and then as far as the actual noun form of each, poison versus venom, I think venom tends to just be, you know, from... Well, what is it? Is it venom from, like, the stinger of a stinging insect, too? Yeah, I okay, believe so. Yeah. I think it's the so sting it's, or any kind of gland that produces a cell-destroying or incapacitating cool. compound. And then poison. But say a poison arrow frog. Isn't it something they eat that then is secreted into their skin? That they skin? then metabolize and secrete as an alkaloid, yeah. And then even, like, the plants themselves that make those things are poisonous poisonous plants right yeah so i think that's a distinction i'm prepared to not look it up and just say yes and if we're wrong we'll tell you next week i'm fairly confident about it which yeah. is also how i tend to make all my best mistakes <laughs> yep so if we say something about this at the beginning of next week's episode you will know we were wrong but if we don't we died from I eating something poisonous <laughs> yeah to figure it out or so. possibly eating something venomous <laughs> It would be poisonous. Despite resorting, uh, excuse me, despite reporting encounters I'm with these I'm going to eat mon- a snake. <laughs> just bites you the entire time. <laughs> yep. I'm being poisoned. <laughs> uh, despite reporting encounters with these monsters, Fawcett made seven additional expeditions between 1906 and 1924. He was mostly... Like you said, uh, 1907. <laughs> <laughs> he was mostly amicable with the indigenous peoples and brokered mutual trust through gifts, patience, and courteous behavior. 
That's a nice rarity. Indeed. Uh, In 1908, he traced the source of the Rio Verde uh, in Brazil, and in 1910 made a journey to Heath River on the border between Peru and Bolivia to find its source. After a 1913 expedition, he supposedly claimed to have seen dogs with double noses. (laughs) So during this adventurous time, likely by 1914... Fawcett had formulated the early ideas of what would come to be his most memorable endeavor. He was contemplating the possibility of a lost city he named Zed, annoyingly referred to as Z in North America. Uh, (laughs) I'm so curious how that separation came to be. Not just in North America, because Canada still says Zed. Right. So why do we say Z? Outside of the Commonwealth, I suppose. Okay. Of Massachusetts? (laughs) Or um, what am I thinking of? Huh? I thought that was the term. Am I crazy? Oh, I don't know. The union? I don't I'm just... Commonwealth of Nations have some affiliation with UK, including Canada, Australia, Britain, Great Britain. Oh, okay. I see. Sorry. Yeah. Yes, that's what I was thinking of, because I was starting to feel like I had I, just I was, overwritten. I was looking at the inverse. I thought you meant outside of here. Everyone says Zed. Oh, and outside we say... of the Commonwealth. Yeah. Indeed. That's, that's what I was... Yeah, totally. Yes. Absolutely. Um, but right. And I now see... What you were saying? Oh, we understand <laughs> each other. <laughs> um, right. So, Lost City of Zed, somewhere in the Mato Grosso region of Brazil, uh, or Mato Grosso, I'm not sure. He theorized that a complex civilization once existed in the Amazon region and that isolated ruins may have survived. He partly relied on a document for this known as Manuscript 512, Ooh. believed to be written by Portuguese Bandiat Rante. Uh, Joao da Silva Guimarães. I have no idea how to pronounce anything in Portuguese. Well, there's a name. So I can't help you. <laughs> who wrote that in 1753, he discovered the ruins of an ancient city that contained arches, a statue, and a temple with hieroglyphics. Hmm. As is mandatory for this kind of document, the city is described in great detail without providing a specific location. Of course. Before pursuing Zed, however, Fawcett had to return to Britain to deal with two other critical letters, which were world and war. (laughs) Serving with the army as a reserve officer in the Royal Artillery, volunteering for duty in Flanders, and commanding an artillery brigade despite being nearly 50 years old, which was like... A thousand back then, at least. Exactly. After the war, Fawcett was right back to Brazil to study local wildlife and archaeology. In 1920, he made a solo attempt to search for Zed, but ended it after suffering from a fever and shooting his pack animal out of pure madness. Just kidding. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it just was out of sorts. Yeah. Five years later in 1925, with funding from a London-based group of financiers known as The Glove. (laughs) Oh, Jesus Christ. I tried to look up if this thing exists. I couldn't find any evidence (laughs) of it online. Why would they choose that as their name? We are The Glove. (laughs) (laughs) Why'd you say it like that? No reason. All I could think of is the uh, um, Spinal Tap album. Yeah, 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 exactly. Oh, uh, what was it called again? <laughs> Smell the Glove. Smell the Glove, yes. <laughs> All their money is just like a little bit sticky. <laughs> uh, but right, fin- financiers known as the Glove, Fawcett returned to Brazil with his eldest son, Jack, and Jack's best and longtime friend, Raleigh Rimmel, or Rimmel, to fully and finally find Zed. All right. Fawcett left instructions stating that if the expedition did not return, no rescue expedition should be sent lest the rescuers suffer his fate. By this time, Fawcett was a man with years of experience traveling, and he had taken with him suitable equipment such as canned foods, powdered milk, guns, flares, a sextant, and a chronometer. You know, an hourglass, a (laughs) timepiece. 
Fawcett chose his travel companions, namely Sun and Sun's bro, for their health, ability, and loyalty to each other. And given that the three of them could travel more lightly and be less noticeable to native tribes, as some were apparently hostile to uh, outsiders. So, on April 20th, 1925, the men set forth, accompanied by two Brazilian laborers, two horses, eight mules, and a pair of dogs. The last communication from the expedition was just over a month later, on May 29th, when Fawcett wrote in a letter to his wife, delivered by a runner, (laughs) ran all the way back to Britain, (laughs) (laughs) that he was ready to go into unexplored territory with only Jack and Raleigh. They were reported to be crossing the upper Zingu, a southeastern tributary river of the uh, Amazon. The final letter, written from Dead Horse Camp, uh, gave their... (laughs) The camp he made where he shot his pack animal before. That is precisely true. Oh, it is? Uh, Gave their location and was generally optimistic. And that was that. Fawcett, his son, and his son's BFF vanished in the Amazon. Mm. Their fates have subsequently become the focus of, naturally, much speculation and storytelling. So far, what do you think, Jake? Uh, they got lost, died. Many people have assumed that local Indians killed them. Oh, jeez. As several tribes were nearby at the time, the Kalapalos, the last tribe to have seen them, along with the Arumas, the Suyas, and the Chavantes, whose territory they were entering. According to explorer John Hemming, Fawcett's party of three was too few to survive in the jungle. In fact, Hemming had a pretty low opinion of Fawcett overall. Hmm. He recently even criticized the publicity for the movie The Lost City of Zed in 2017, so I guess Hemming is like 3,000 years old, (laughs) for claiming that Fawcett was one of Britain's greatest explorers, arguing that this was an insult to the many true explorers, and that Fawcett was a racist, a nutter, and a dangerous incompetent who, quote, never discovered anything. Wow. Because of the loss of many lives. Sounds like he at least discovered how to get under Hemming's skin. Am I right? <laughs> the Kalapalo have maintained an oral story of the arrival of the three explorers, which states that the three went east, but that after five days, the Kalapalo or Kalapalo uh, d- noticed that the group no longer made campfires. So they say that a very violent tribe most likely killed them. So I think they were amiable enough uh, with the three. But um, yeah. And apparently, the uh, younger men were also lame and ill when last seen, but there was no proof. Really uncool and sick. Exactly. But not the good kind of sick. Um, (laughs) While tantalizing traces of Fawcett, sounds like a grocery aisle book. (laughs) (laughs) Tantalizing traces. Um, While some evidence of Fawcett's campaign did emerge in the ensuing years, such as a nameplate and compass of Fawcett's. Like his desk name placard? (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) They were either from Fawcett's expedition five years earlier or left behind before he entered the jungle on his final journey. So Mm. they weren't directly uh, tying into where they may have gone, ultimately. Dead Horse Camp may also contain some clues. This was Fawcett's last uh, known location, and it was from here that Fawcett wrote to his wife about the hardships that he and his companions had faced, his coordinates, his doubts in Raleigh Rimmel, and his plans for the near future. In this letter, he wrote, Here we are at Dead Horse Camp, latitude 11 degrees 43 minutes south and longitude 54 degrees 35 minutes west. The spot where my horse died in 1920. I do think it's uh, funny that he did actually name it after that because I was just joking when I said that. Right. But also that he said where his horse died, not where I killed my horse. Where I shot my horse in the fucking head. (laughs) Um, Oh, how did this happen? Yeah. He fell on some bullets. Um, (laughs) However, in a report to the North American Newspaper Alliance, he gave the same coordinates for all but latitude, quoting 13 degrees south rather than 11. 
Hmm. There is speculation that, while the discrepancy may have been a typographical error, Fawcett may have intentionally concealed the location to prevent others from using his notes to find the lost city. In 1951, Orlando Villas-Boas, activist for indigenous people, supposedly received the actual remaining skeletal bones of Fawcett and had them analyzed scientifically. The analysis allegedly confirmed the bones were Fawcett's, but Fawcett's son, Brian, uh, refused to accept this. At the time, Villas-Boas claimed that Brian was too interested in making money from books about his father's disappearance, such as, and this title is real, Expedition Fawcett. (laughs) (laughs) But later scientific uh, analysis confirmed that the bones were not Percy's. I thought Project Science was a dumb name. (laughs) And then we come to March 21st, 2004, when the Mm -hmm. British newspaper The Observer reported that television director Misha Williams, uh, who claims to have studied Fawcett's private papers, believed that Fawcett had never intended to return to Britain, but rather meant to found a commune in the jungle based on theosophical principles and the worship of his son, Jack. What? Misha was so inspired by Fawcett's life and story that he wrote a two-hour play about it, producing a document which includes an extensive what? preface laying out Fawcett's life history, expeditions, and disappearance, including what he claims is some truly insider info. Hmm. <laughs> Indeed. Hmm. The so-called secret papers form a dossier of letters and other correspondence. Really great names to stuff in this. <laughs> yeah. Form a dossier of letters and other correspondence involving Fawcett purportedly provided to Misha by the Fawcett family. According to this cryptic source, the search for the city of Zed was actually a blind. Quote, it is obvious that by 1924 Fawcett had made this a secondary objective. His main aim was to deliver his elder son Jack, now in his early 20s, over to the lodge of, quote, Earth Guardians, called the Great White Brotherhood, white in this case meaning purity, not race. Hmm. They are also known as the Watchers or the Shining Ones. Huh. The secret papers reveal that the intention was that Fawcett would set up a colony of spiritually inclined settlers in Amazonia, while Jack, once trained by the Brotherhood, would found a similar colony in his own birthplace, Ceylon. These plans Fawcett codenamed, quote, The Great Scheme. In the secret papers, Brian writes, this is his son, uh, quote, The old cities were not his principal objective, but were necessary to provide the finance for his great scheme. A fantastically ambitious idea of creating colonies of super people who would take over from the existing (laughs) governments and become the beginnings of a new race. Oh my god. Fawcett's article in The Occult Review of November 1923 entitled, quote, Links with the Planetary Control had already declared publicly his strong belief in the Watchers or Great White Brotherhood. Quote, our world's evolution does not proceed in any sense upon haphazard lines. No untrained individual could retain consciousness in the presence of one of these very advanced adepts. They are located in lands which once belonged to great civilizations, unquote. So this took a turn straight into our territory in a way I did not expect. I was quite satisfied by that as well. That's pretty great. It is clear that Fawcett wanted to create his colony near to one of these mystic centers and thereby gain maximum spiritual wisdom from these beings. Jack was a vital part of the great scheme. His birth in Ceylon in 1903 was considered miraculous by Fawcett, who describes it in an article he wrote for the Occult Review in February of 1913. I I like that he's repeat submit for that (laughs) particular uh, publication. Quote, one morning at breakfast on the veranda, a deputation of soothsayers and Buddhists asked for an audience. 
I was told I was about to become the father of a son whose appearance was minutely described, the reincarnation of an advanced spirit, and my wife and I had been especially selected. The child would have a mole on the instep of the right foot, and his toes, in place of a sliding scale in size, would run in pairs, presumably meaning the first and second, third and fourth, fifth and sixth toes of each foot would respectively be of equal lengths, I guess? At the time, I think that would make sense from that particular forwarding. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> also, um, I looked it up because I was curious, and sadly, the Occult Review ceased publication in 1951. I totally wanted to subscribe Bummer. to it. <laughs> <laughs> or submit to it. Ooh. Well, everyone has to submit <laughs> to the Occult Review. <laughs> Continuing the quote, he would be born on Buddha's anniversary, 19th of May. This date was a month beyond the time anticipated. A remarkable feature about the boy, not shared by his brother or sister, is a slight obliquity of his eyes. So just like his eyes would be at a slight sharper angle. Mm -hmm. All of the above turned out as predicted, apparently. Now, did he submit that before or after his son was born? Yeah, good question. (laughs) Um So, what of the Lost City? Sure, maybe it was something of a cover for even more banana sandwich endeavors, but it turns out it may not have been entirely bonkers. Researchers believe that Fawcett may have been influenced in his thinking by information obtained from indigenous people about the archaeological site of Kuhikugu, or Kuhikugu? I don't know. Uh, Near the headwaters of the Zingu River, uh, Kuhikugu was officially discovered by Westerners only after Fawcett's presumed death in the jungle. So... There was no Western record of the site until later. The site contains the ruins of an estimated 20 towns and villages in which as many as 50,000 people might have once lived. The discovery of other large geometrical earthworks in the same area has also since been recognized as broadly supporting Fawcett's theory of an established sort of ancient civilization in Mm. that area. So two things this makes me think of right away before I ask your questions is one, how cool it might be to do a two-part back-to-back if we can get the permission to do it reading of that play because I read a little bit of it and I do have it. Oh, my God. And it's it would be so good. <laughs> and maybe we should watch the 2017 film. I think we should definitely do that. Both those things for sure. We How many characters are there in the... like who How we need to cast um, it? I think it's something like eight characters. It's not too many. Okay. I think we could make an audio drama out of that where we could record different parts. People could play multiple characters too. Yeah. But I have a few people in mind who could Excellent. probably jump in on that pretty hard. <laughs> if if it's kosher to do, I don't know if that's like something. We'll see if there's any rights we need to actually obtain first, but I like the idea of doing that. But yeah, there you go. The Fossers. story of Percy Fawcett. Huh. And well, the Lost City of Zed. That is quite something. I see here I was just thinking of someone going to try and find a Lost City and then getting lost. Which I still think is probably the most likely thing that Parsimonious, happened. Parsimonious. But if he was genuinely believing all this shit, then maybe he was trying to do some insane thing and then got lost. Um, it would help explain why he was like, don't follow me. Yeah. Don't come after me. Yeah, and like not giving the correct coordinates and stuff. Right. That is something. It's so cool seeing in the tropics where like these great civilizations once were how quickly they can disappear once no one's there anymore absolutely and true. how impossible they are to find after the fact the rapid vegetative tsunami yeah the growth of plants in those areas is so fast it can reclaim stuff so amazingly mm-hmm. i actually had a really great tour guide in costa rica um when we we're in monteverde the research station Did there they get reclaimed on the tour he, yeah he, while we were talking to him the forest just took him 
You can, can see it happening. <laughs> yeah, it's happening right now. <laughs> Look carefully. He pointed out an area we walked through because we were going through the secondary growth forest on our way into it. Then he showed us where the border was into the primary growth rainforest, which had never been cut down before. The previous stuff had been clear cut entirely and used as farmland for years. And then they ceased using it that way. And I think the 70s and it fully grew back. And wow. he was saying how like, and he did a lot of research before we arrived too, knowing we were coming from Vermont and said that uh, it would take about 200 years for that same amount of regrowth to occur in New England. Wow. So pretty amazing. That's amazing. How fast stuff grows there. Yeah. You can see it in any different kinds of like Mayan or Aztec ruins and things like that. You can see it in Angkor Wat or things in Cambodia, just mm. Southern Asia in general, especially with strangler figs and stuff that just the way those grow, they, um, the seed is usually shat or, or um, vomited <laughs> out by a bird or other kind language, of animal. Language, language. Sorry, vom- uh, puked. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. And then it starts to grow from the canopy downward and sends its, its roots down and then it engulfs whatever is below it. So you can see all these different cool temples in Southern Asia that are totally covered in trees that way. Mm-hmm. Like they're just dripping from the sky. To say nothing of just how much everything can grow in from everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so you have entire pyramids and things in South and Central America that just go away. And I mean, you've seen the cool. damages that humble little weeds and grasses can do in the temperate zone to sidewalks yeah Yeah, you know asphalt these are just little you get a little crack and then a plant starts growing in it and then when they take in water they expand and then push that apart it can just keep going and going and quite rapidly but even if it doesn't destroy the rock it can just cover stuff too and so in an area like that where you can have any kind of stuff it's just really cool so that's why i'd love to know if anyone has made an attempt to use like infrared satellite laser scans and things too, to look yeah. for just in the general area he was claiming to be in see oh is there something around there well i think that is the case i think that's what they're referring to in this uh kuhikugu site okay is that there there has since been a discovery of quite an extensive ruin essentially and it's close enough that it seems like close it's enough that it was feasibly within sense. within striking distance of what he was going for but cool I mean, they find new stuff all the time. And I love that kind of aerial survey, you know, really broad and careful look investigation because you see patterns that are just fascinating and completely hidden to the naked eye Yeah, if you at, just on look ground at, level. If you look at, if you're on the ground or if you're even just looking at normal, just basic visual photographs, right. you can't see. It's like, oh, it's just trees. Or even in Egypt, it's just sand. Right. But then when you look just slightly below the surface with the infrared, right. it's like, oh, this kind of looks like the shape of like a pyramid or like a city or something. And then you go there and sure enough. Often, too, the groundwork is what the only thing that really remains. And so they'll look for these uh, sort of berms that outline the the sort of footprint of where a structure would be that has since been completely eroded or broken down or whatever and yet you can still see sort of the basic ground plan this is also now making me think of one of my very favorite discoveries of an ancient event let's put it that way Mm -hmm. which is the evidence of uh, titanic floods in the northwest of north america Mm -hmm. this is where glacial flooding explosive glacial flooding released glacial lakes over otherwise standard plains land Mm -hmm. but the flood was so 
immense that it left behind essentially the giant version of what you would see uh, after like the tide goes out or something in the sand. Like there's this there's oh, wow. these rolling hills in the uh, northwest of North America that to see on the ground you're just sort of like oh they're just rolling hills. Mm-hmm. But if you look at them from the sky in a plane. It suddenly looks like a sandy oh, shore that has had water run over it, and they were like, "Oh, wait a minute! <laughs> there was a flood that was like so much, so fast. a mile deep or something." Yeah. yeah, it was incredibly. Just to think of that amount of water. Yeah, once well, you have water building up behind ice, and then some of the ice breaks, and all the water comes out. Ugh. So anyway, that's some a stuff. tangent, but a fun one. Yeah, just in general, this this type of investigation this type of science right. can have some really cool discoveries yes and none of those discoveries have involved anything to do with white brotherhoods or <laughs> superior races started in faraway places where ancient civilizations used to be or uh what are they called earth guardians yeah but that play certainly does there's an earth guardian in that play <laughs> referred to as m oh boy for mm. <laughs> All right, that needs to happen at some point in the near future. I look forward to that. Excellent. Otherwise, yeah, we hope you enjoyed our look at science gone not great and how that can look. I mean, we both love science. We both know that literally most of science, I'd say at probably around 90% of science is failure. That's just how it goes. Oh, absolutely. You're just trying to get shit to work, and then finally it does then you learn a whole bunch. It's, yeah, it's how much you can learn from things not going right. And they go, well, that isn't how that works. That isn't how that mm-hmm. works. That isn't how that works. You said that a thousand more times. And, and then, then you're a scientist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, oh, it might work that way. Yeah. And that is your thesis <laughs> or dissertation, depending on your degree. But yeah, thank you guys so much for joining us. Next week, we'll be back on our kind of uh, usual shit in the sense that we'll be covering either cryptids or ghostiness. You know, our normal bread and butter type of stuff. A B&B-E, if you will. Bed and, uh, bed and breakfast episode. <laughs> sure. What was I looking for with that? I have no idea. I said I said bread and butter. Then bread and want. butter, that's what I wanted. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> All right, bye. Bye. Bye.